going in three two one welcome oh wait hold on <laughs> all of a sudden i was like i don't even know how i start welcome. <laughs> it's like that muscle memory thing where if i don't think about it i can just go right into it but uh -huh. the second i actually think about it then i like no that's wrong no it was the right way oh man <laughs> that's opening. <laughs> All right, let's try that again. <laughs> Going in three, two, one. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think they're a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we <laughs> try in vain to help men understand how to actually be allies and not just think that they are, but it doesn't always work out. Anyway, I'm Karen Peterson, and I am joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> Welcome! <laughs> um, Hi, Lauren. Hello, I'm sorry, I'm still giggling. I love um, it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are you doing, Karen? Uh, you know, I was fine until about 10 seconds before we were going to start recording, and I saw a tweet that just made me just... It just, like, threw everything off. It was just like, oh, oh, we're going to do that today, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to necessarily... We're not going to talk about the specific tweet here right now, because I don't no. want to give this person um, a shout-out of any kind but i mean if you go on twitter you can see what's happening if you just look at saturday morning but uh the point is someone wrote a tweet that we believe was a very well-intentioned tweet about supporting films with female leads but it was also an extremely limiting perspective and it just makes me sad when people just are so clueless and they really are just so insistent that they're not. Because now he's trying to argue with us about why he's right about female representation and we're wrong. So that's <laughs> that's that's always fun. I mean, I think there's a general rule of thumb with men that like if, if a woman, and particularly if multiple women, mm -hmm. say to you, no, you're, you're not you're not getting it when you're talking about female representation or feminism, things like that. Maybe take that to heart. Maybe be like, hmm, maybe I'm not getting it because if women are telling you you're not, you might not be the best feminist in this particular area. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's not saying you're, you're always wrong or anything like that or that women are always right, but you know, just kind of think about that a little bit. Exactly. And again, we acknowledge that this is probably a person that means well and is just not quite there on this and and it's not the first time that we've had a little bit of a sparring match with this particular person but but this happens a lot i mean you yeah. have to say you know just spinning out from from just the regular just the one individual right it happens a lot where basically you get men saying like you know no that's incorrect when <laughs> no that's not feminism it's like or or my favorite is that's not a woman's experience yeah <laughs> and and that that one is just like okay 
dude, cisgender man, <laughs> how the fuck would you know? Like, uh-huh. how would you know that that is not a woman's experience? You know, that's never happened to a woman. It's like, I'm pretty positive that I would have a better idea about female experience than you. Just mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, so that's what happened right before we were about to start recording. So that's why we're a little giggly, because we're just like, oh, I can't, like, because you either have to laugh or cry at these situations. And yes. <laughs> we're choosing to laugh, because it's Saturday morning, and it's, you know, it's been a good week, and... Hopefully. I don't know. Has it been a good week for you? Uh, it's, it's been all right. I've had some some weird, weird interactions with men. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just fine. You know, just kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to I'm going to move on now. Uh, <laughs> Tell me more, Liz. Tell me more. <laughs> I, I did get an apology, by the way, about oh, that. Great. So so that was good. That was good. That was just it was someone who who'd made an error. And uh, so, you know, fair fair enough everything it just it's always a bit odd when someone's like that's that's not my name someone referred to me by a name that is not mine um (laughs) and even though they they should know my name but yeah so i did get an apology so that's that's all good no no harm no foul (laughs) that is good i teach a class at church once a month and um when people you know want to want to answer a question they raise their hand i always like i've known all these folks for years i know everyone really well but i always like freak out that i'm gonna call them the wrong name so then i just end up pointing at them which is i think more awkward (laughs) but it's like i know them but i don't want to say the wrong name in front of everyone so (laughs) (laughs) there have been a few people in my life that i have like persistently accidentally to be honest called them the wrong name and it's it's always been a problem one of my closest friends in college i did not know her name for weeks and it reached the point where we had spent enough time together that i couldn't ask her name like i couldn't be like like hey i'm sorry we've hung out we've like you know we're friends now but i have no idea what your actual name is and so i finally had to ask like other people who were living in our halls just like okay you know that girl what's her name <laughs> it's like you know that girl i've been spending all my time with yeah it's just like aren't you guys friends just like yes i just can't remember her name i'm sorry <laughs> yeah anyway names are hard names are hard that's true anyway <laughs> all right well we have a really fun uh conversation today about genre but before we get into that we want to finally get around to Mason's question. We're so sorry that um, that we didn't get to this sooner. And honestly, I wish that we had been able to see it and ask it the week that you originally asked it because, or answer it, because um, it fit in with that conversation that we were having because it was um, the week of the Paul Schrader, Martin Scorsese taxi driver discussion. But anyway, we're going to talk about it now. So this is from at Mason Mumbles. Do you think any famous directors would benefit from directing a movie they didn't write? Like Yorgos Lanthimos in The Favorite. I sometimes think Christopher Nolan films would be better if he wasn't working with his own screenplays. Yeah. Yeah. I would say most directors would benefit from directing a movie they didn't write at least you know, not every time, but like at least for the experience of it. So um, that's my very broad answer. I'll get a little more specific in a minute. But um, Lauren, what do you say? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think that it's interesting because I, I hadn't, I don't, I tend to not pay attention sometimes to the difference between screenplays and, and the director. Um, I didn't realize that the favorite was, was one that he hadn't written, but um, it's also, it's actually written by, uh, at least by one woman, Deborah Davis, um, which is, is interesting because, because it's, it's the only Yorgos Lanthimos film that I've actually enjoyed. <laughs> um, which is not to say I, I appreciate, like, I appreciate his directing style. I appreciate what he's trying to do with his films. They're just not for me. They're not films that connect with me, right? Um, but I really love The Favorite, and, and I think it's interesting that this was a film that he actually didn't write. So, um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that a lot of the time directors, directors who are also writers get too close to their work. There's, there's, because it's kind of like, um, you know, writing and editing your own manuscript sometimes that, you know, you're, you're not having that connection with another person in trying to shape what it, whatever it is that you're doing. So if you're just, if you're solely writing and directing your own scripts, um, there, there maybe is a continuum there that, that you could kind of get, but you don't get that, that combination of a writer and director that can really produce sparks. And I think that that's one of the things that happened with Taxi Driver. You know, where does the Schrader, where does Schrader end and Scorsese begin? It doesn't really, because it's, it's a collaboration. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah, one of the big things, I think, is that when directors are working with a screenwriter and not themselves, and I think even if it's um, a co-writing situation where, like, they have someone helping with the screenplay, I think can also be beneficial. But, um, but just getting the director a little bit of distance from the story, I think, can be really beneficial. And I think especially... Um, if a director has either if they're early in their career or if they have kind of been spinning their wheels a bit and their films are starting to feel the same all the time um, or too similar at least I think that stepping outside of that that role getting themselves a little bit of distance from the story hearing another person's perspective on a story can really be beneficial getting a writer in there who um, just has a different view of, of, or approach to a theme, to an idea, to a concept can really, um, just elevate it. I would love to see Paul Thomas Anderson direct someone else's work, you know? Yeah. I, I think that I, you know, I would, I think honestly, any writer director, I think should, should at least try this at some point for, for some variety, for just stretching themselves a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. So I, was just, I just thought of this, but Orson Welles, I think every single one of his the films that he directed, he also wrote. Mm. Um, and if you know the the trajectory of Orson Welles' career, he he has some really great films, but they fall off in quality fairly quickly. Um, yeah. And and some of that is because of of the issues that he has as a director, the issues that he had with producers and studios and everything. But, you know, he's credited as screenwriter. Of course, there, of course, we saw Mank. Everybody argues about Citizen Kane. But he's yeah. credited as screenwriter, I think, on all of the films that he directed. Um, and, and you can tell. I mean, you can tell that he's, he's a very egotistical director. I think he's a great director in a lot of ways. 
but you can sort of tell that he's, you know, kind of in love with his own language and in love with his own scripts and screenplays and everything. Um, and I don't think that that always helps. I don't think that that's always something that, you know, it contributes to, to the, the film. Um, and it would have been interesting to see what he could have done with working, you know, in tandem with another screenwriter, um, more so than, you know, I don't know whether, how much to take Mank as gospel truth, right? But, um, but definitely Wells, I think, probably needed that, even if it would just be to cut down his own ego a little bit. Exactly. So, so yes, I think that there are lots of uh, directors who could benefit from that. I think all of them could. So, any yeah, other? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Any other definitely. thoughts on that? I I don't know about Christopher Nolan. I mean, I have many many issues with Christopher <laughs> Nolan, uh, not least the ones that have come up recently uh, again, but. I, I mean, I think it would be, uh, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see, like I say, Yorgos Lanthimos until the favorite was, didn't really speak to me and I really liked that film. And so that it might be because, you know, he's, maybe it's just that sense of stepping outside of your comfort zone um, and not, yeah. you know, trying to work on something that's a different genre than what you usually do or um, a different style of writing, different style of dialogue, you know, all kinds of things. You kind of get that collaborative element uh, going. Mm -hmm. I think so, the biggest thing is, is the collaboration. I think that that when directors, kind of what you were, you were just saying, when directors are too close to the material because they've been there from the beginning, like from concepts through the screenplay writing process to actually sitting down and directing the film, I think that there is an ownership there that is good, but it it can be limiting and it can make them just too attached to certain things and so then it's difficult for them to know where to um kill their darlings so to speak yeah exactly you you and particularly when you're talking about directors that are very successful yeah they don't have that opportunity to you know question their own decision making process <laughs> question what they're doing and and to actually be like oh you know maybe i need to approach this in a way that is not immediately comfortable to me is not my immediate go-to spot but is something that i actually need to need to do mm -hmm. yeah uh okay so um we're gonna talk today about genre and i think that before we get into some of the specifics of genre i think it's it's important to talk about why genre matters <laughs> and <laughs> and why it's important for us to understand it in in this you know continuing this conversation of film criticism and what yeah. film criticism really is about and what it is there to accomplish um so lauren for you why does it matter to understand genre and as it relates to film criticism <laughs> uh i i think because it's it's really one of the only ways to approach certain films because we've seen it a lot, you know, um, where a critic says, you know, and we've seen particularly with horror, as we were talking a little bit um, last week, a film critic starts out by saying, I don't like horror films. 
and here's why I didn't like this horror mm -hmm. film. And, and I'm not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but there are definite, there's definitely a, a, a need to appreciate and understand genre. I've read critics before who have talked about action movies, right? So, you know, The Expendables, as though they're supposed to be art films. And, and it's like, okay, but those are two very different things, right? The, what the films are, I, I think it comes down to what are the films intended to do? What are, is their meaning, right? Is it to, you know, it, I think always at a certain level it's to entertain, right? Um, particularly when you're talking about, about more mainstream films, about budgeted films, et cetera. But, you know, what are they trying to accomplish? Are they doing, you know, we talked about slashers, are they doing kind of by the numbers slasher? Are they doing something different with the slasher? Um, you know, in, in order to understand subversion of conventions, you have to understand the conventions to begin with. And you have to understand whether or not that works. Um, so I think that as, as critics, you know, when you're approaching a film, you have to approach films in different lights and be like, you know, this, this film is intended to behave in a certain way. It's intended to be in this genre. Um, and this is why it works and this is why it doesn't. This is why it subverts the genre. This is why it doesn't. This is what that means. So that we're not simply approaching it as all films are exactly the same. You know, you're on a level playing field, but you're actually coming to meet them uh, at the point that they're at. So, you know, we're not expecting a Western to involve aliens, right? Or maybe we are, I don't know. I mean, cowboys and aliens. Yes, that is true. <laughs> um, and, you know, when we talk about space Westerns and space operas and things like that, you know, so you, and that's, that's the other thing is to be able to introduce generic conventions into other genres. And that's where you get mashup genres. That's where you get this kind of interesting combination of this, this interesting pastiche of, um, of different genres. That's one of the things that we were talking about when we talked about Malignant last week. Uh, this kind of combining of, of aesthetics and images and expectations into something kind of new and different and fun, but also recognizable. And that's one of the things that we have to be able to understand, I think, as critics, is to go into this being like, this is what this film is supposed to be, right? So does it succeed at being that or does it fail? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, we hear a lot of people say like, oh, this movie is really predictable. And that's where it's like, okay, I need to pull back. Was it predictable or does it just fit in with certain patterns established by genre that make it where it's following a certain course you know like is it fitting in with with the with other films that are similar or is it truly just like oh my gosh so predictable you know we have to we have to be able to understand the difference when we're writing about film it's yeah you know it's it that's not something that um necessarily will matter as much to someone who just enjoys watching films and just wants to know what movies are good and bad but when you're really trying to break down and critically analyze a movie and like what you're saying where it works and where it doesn't where it successfully subverts expectations and where it just charges full steam ahead and does exactly what is expected of it you need to understand how genres work yeah and 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 how they don't so yeah well, and I think a good example is um, the, some of the different critical reactions to Knives Out, 
mm-hmm. and some of the commentary. And and there were obviously a lot of people who were just like, do you know what a whodunit is? <laughs> because I'm not certain if you do. But so one of the things that I think Knives Out did very well, and people can disagree with me on it, obviously, but um, is is to take kind of the concept of the the old manor house whodunit, which is what it is. It's very Agatha Christie. It references Agatha Christie quite explicitly. Um, and play with that, right? So it's playing within this genre and it is subverting expectation. It, it is making also using commentary on the inherent racism and classism of the whodunit, uh, particularly as done by Agatha Christie um, or Dorothy Sayers, right? Who were writing in the 1930s primarily, that's when the most famous ones were. Um, and so that film like kind of takes some of those tropes and concepts and structure, and then does something different with it and creates something, ultimately creates something that as a, a avid reader of whodunit, someone who loves Agatha Christie, I was like, well, I kind of should have expected some of this. I definitely expect a twist, but I didn't really know where it was going, how it was going to come out in the end. And, it, and that's what makes it work. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that uh, as we go into this conversation, I think that we need to talk about what genre is and and how we break that down so like i was um i was doing some some reading in the last couple weeks actually about this topic and um watching some uh the great courses if you have if you have access to canopy you can watch great courses for free which is awesome so i was watching this one that was specifically about genre just for like a general overview and um, it was saying that there are 11 super genres. And I was like, okay, that's cool. We can talk about if this is still really, um, if this really encompasses everything. But basically, the 11 super genres, they say, are action, crime, fantasy, horror, life, romance, sci-fi, sports, thriller, war, and western. And I think that we can have a discussion over whether like superhero has become its own genre or if that fits into one of these, like if it's sci-fi or fantasy or something else. Um, Cause I have yeah. some thoughts on that, but, but basically that's what it comes down to. So every film pretty much fits into a, one of these 11 super genres, but then you break it down from there. So then you've got macro genres, which like, okay, if it's a, uh, Western is that a modern day Western? Is it a you know, like the old West? Is it another country? You know those kinds of things. So there's like macros, and then there are micro genres, which really get into like, um, for crime film, for example, you could have a heist movie, but then is it a procedural heist movie? That kind of thing. So, so let's uh, start there. <laughs> so. I, yeah, I mean, I think that that seems to be a pretty, pretty good breakdown um, about that. I, I think that yeah, then you you get into the the issue of mashup genre, mm-hmm. um, and so so like you say, a superhero movie. Okay, well, it's an action movie. Um, it can also be a thriller, or you know, it can be. Um, uh, I, I think one of the interesting examples, and I I hesitate to bring this up because oh my god. But um, but the the Ar- what, Army of the Dead, Zack Snyder's uh, mm-hmm. Army of the Dead, which is a heist movie mashed with a zombie film, right? So you right. got so it's a crime movie and a sci-fi 
and a horror film and a right horror. <laughs> right so well and that's the other thing so sci-fi and horror so you've got alien right which mm -hmm. is definitely a sci-fi movie it takes place in space in the future at some point um but it, it is also a horror film and it has a lot of the trappings of kind of a haunted house or a monster movie um and so see so you, you do or even a slasher right so we talked about how i would call jaws a slasher movie mm -hmm. um but so but it's also it's also an, an action film really you know it's a it's a mystery you know there so there are all of those kind of permutations um that wind up you know so saying like so how do we categorize these different films uh and 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 ultimately what we're talking about is that definitely a lot of these establish certain expectations audience expectations a horror movie when you go into a horror movie you're expecting horror right of some form you're expecting a monster a killer a a mystery maybe a ghost a haunted house a something supernatural something paranormal maybe something more actually human um but still not very heavy on on action or fight scenes or anything like that yeah yeah so the super genre well all genres just give you an idea of what to expect from the film and i think that this is where it's really important for uh, for writers, for people who are writing the films, but also especially people who are um, critically analyzing them to understand this because then you can, it really helps to, to dissect, does this work? Like what we were talking about before. So if you're watching a movie like, um, I'm trying to think of one right now, like Shang-Chi, which is um, still out in theaters and it's really good. Um, and that's a superhero movie. Again, we can talk about which, like, does that have its own super genre? Or is that an action movie first or a fantasy movie? I would argue that it's both of those. But then what does it do? You know, so then it goes into its, you know, what are the macro genres that would be related to those? I, if we're going to say that superhero is not a super genre, it could be a macro genre. And then you go down from there. So it's like you're just drilling down more and more to understand what the film is trying to accomplish and what it actually does accomplish. So a movie like Shang-Chi, yeah. which is an origin story, and it's also um, heist isn't no, it's not a heist. Um, it's uh. I don't know. Anyway, like basically it comes down to trying to protect a group of people or, mm. or in this case, really the whole world um, from something catastrophic. And there are moments throughout the film that will pull from other uh, micro and macro genres, too. So you end up with like a, a, a chase scene, which, you know, that's that's pretty common element in crime movies mm. or um you know, really cool fight scenes that have a lot of fantasy element to them that and that kind of thing. So, but you have to be able to understand those elements. So, yeah, we, we come into, I think most films, we come into expectations about what they're going to be, right. right? This is going to be, this is going to fall into a broad genre. This is going to do something right. And so with superhero films, we come into those films with certain expectations. We're going to get, a superpowered individual of some kind. Their superpower is either, you know, super normal in some way, um, 
or it is, you know, something that they obtain through training, uh, et cetera. So you do have even permutations within the superhero genre of people like Superman, right, who are from another planet and are like literally super, have superhuman abilities. Or someone like, um, more like Black Widow, who is basically a trained assassin, right? That's right. what she's supposed to be. So her abilities are not super powered in any sense. Right. Um, and, and so then you get permutations within that. But we definitely go into superhero movies with particular expectations, particular beats, plot beats that we think they're going to hit. Like you're saying, if you're talking about an origin story versus something that's a sequel um, or kind of a building of, uh, of, a ca- of character relationships, you know, the Avengers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with an origin story, we're going to expect to meet someone who is for all intents and purposes normal right and then becomes the superhero by the end of the film yeah yeah so like when someone's trying to describe a movie and they say oh it's like this meets that and they're naming a couple of different movies that are similar it's it's really not necessarily that the film is like those movies it's really trying to to describe um the the genre elements of it yeah so yeah and i i think the genre sometimes comes to comes to um you know i know it when i see it kind of thing you Mm -hmm. know and and certain genres are definitely easier to pinpoint in a lot of ways than others so the western right is very easy to pinpoint for the most part you know so when you get john wayne riding on a horse in the american west that is a western you know that it's going to be a western right what happens in the film is not necessarily exactly what we expect from a western but that's that's definitely the genre that it's occupying but other others are much broader i mean if you say what what's a horror film Mm -hmm. right a horror film has all kinds of things what's an action film you know what's a fantasy film well you know lord of the rings is definitely fantasy but it's also action mm-hmm. um and but it's not an action and... movie <laughs> it's not an action movie in the way that we talk about like arnold schwarzenegger films right yeah yeah and that's where you do get that blend of of genres and so you have to understand what each one is trying to accomplish like what is the main uh what are the main characteristics, I guess, of, of the genres? So, like, uh, for a crime movie, for example, um, there are so many different ways that that can work, but the center of it is that it's some something to do with a crime. But is that a movie where the cops are trying to stop the bad guys? Is it about a hard-boiled detective who's trying to, you know, reclaim his career or whatever, or, or solve one last case? Is it... Um, some people who you're on their side, they're the anti-heroes and you're trying to, like, they're trying to get away with something. Um, is it someone trying to escape from something that they were, you know, like someone in prison, like in the Shawshank Redemption where he's in prison wrongfully and he needs to escape, you know, that kind of thing. So there's lots of different, um, different ways to break down any one of these super genres. So, um, you know, with a war movie. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What war are we even talking about? Does it have to be the kind where we're fighting with, like, swords or guns? Or can it be about, you know, wars like the little guy going against Big Pharma or something like that? You know, there's lots of um, 
lots of ways to, to break that down where you're um, you're looking at sort of the, the main conventions and using that to uh, to really understand the story that the filmmakers are trying to, to tell. Yeah, and, and we're all conditioned to expect certain things out of these movies, and that's that's what the films kind of play with and set up for us, right? We're ex so for the the crime film, we're expect like you say we're expected we expect crime in some mm -hmm. manner, right? Whether that is organized crime, like a, a gangster movie uh, or a mafia film, um, or whether it's a police procedural. So we're on the side of law and order, right? We're on the side of the whether it's a heist film, we're on the side of the thieves. Um, and, and, you know, and whether it's, you know, even within this, like, is it a cat and mouse game where you're kind of on both sides where you see the perspective of the police officer, the detective or whoever. Um, and you also see the side of the thief, the killer, whoever is, is doing that. And you kind of watch them sort of come together. So we're conditioned to expect certain things. And that's where then the filmmakers and the storytellers can subvert our expectations and actually be like, ah, you thought that that's what was going on, but it actually isn't. Um, or you thought this guy was a good guy and he actually, he actually wasn't, he was on the side of the villains, you know. But then we even get conditioned to begin to expect that. That's one of the problems I think that we're running into a lot with, with uh, crime films and horror films, particularly right now, is that we're conditioned at this moment to expect a twist. Right. We're like, OK, we think that this is doing one thing, but it's actually doing something different. And so, you know, going back to our discussion of Malignant, I think that 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 is a film where you go into it. You're like, OK, I, I expect for there to be something that is revealed at the end of all of this. The question becomes, does the film do a good job at setting up for that reveal? Um, does it make sense? Right. Or is it just kind of out of the blues like, wait a minute that doesn't work right um or does it actually you know does it does it work and uh it's something that surprises you know i i mean i will say that when it came to malignant i was surprised <laughs> yeah. um but part of the reason why i was surprised was not so much that i didn't expect the twist to come i knew that the twist was coming but i didn't expect the twist to take it the particular form that it did and and for it to be for it to go as far as it did, right? And that's one of the things that I think made that film very successful for me as a viewer and as a critic, that I consider myself to be someone that knows, a, yeah, I know a lot about horror films. I've seen a lot of horror films. I know what to expect from some of this. And it gave me what I was expecting, but then also more than that. Right. And that's yeah. what makes it successful. Yeah, exactly. So what are, let's, uh, well, okay. Like you just watched Candyman. Yay. Yes. Finally. Yeah. So like Candyman, I mean, we could talk more about Malignant because that movie is crazy and <laughs> awesome and people should watch it. But also we had, you know, we had a little bit of a good discussion last night after you saw mm -hmm. Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Um, so what would you say with that one about, how it fits into the horror genre well i i think what's so great about that film is the fir first of all it's already got a lot of baggage attached to it mm -hmm. because it's a basically a straight sequel to a, to the 92 film right which is based on a horror story yeah um and you've got this 
you've got this this narrative, this urban legend, basically that is that is building up around the concept of Candyman, right? And what I really liked about Nia DaCosta's film is that it didn't disregard its predecessor. It didn't say like we're going to completely rewrite all of that, but we're actually going to take all of it and kind of bring it into bring it into 2021. We're going to bring it into, um, and we're also going to tell this from the perspective not of the you know white woman who is being persecuted, but um, but from the perspective of a black man who is kind of investigating all of this and trying to come to terms with the racial violence that is that was done to Candyman because that's part of the basis of the Candyman story, right? Um, and so it, I think that what really makes that film work is that it takes all of these trappings of the horror genre. So, you know, we, and we even talked about it, the whole, the concept of urban legends and the stories that we tell about um, these various figures. So Candyman already has all of this cultural baggage that is attached to it, even like right when the film gets made, right? So the speaking in the mirror, all of those things, we recognize that immediately. We're like, okay, I know what genre this is. Um, and then you kind of take that, Nia DaCosta took that and went beyond it and said like, okay, we're gonna turn, basically we're gonna flip this around. And rather than this being a white perspective on a, a black issue, this is going to be a black perspective on a black issue and still doing all of those tropes and using all of the things that we are conditioned to expect from, from a Candyman film generally, from a horror film, from a slasher movie and going further with it and being like, we're gonna turn this around, we're gonna look at it from a different perspective and we're going to treat it differently. So it's, it's, it's this interesting subversion of monstrosity, of the effect that trauma and monstrosity has on communities, has on individuals. Um, and it's really doing something different, I think, with the horror genre because it's not taking the mainstream perspective. And by mainstream, I mean the, the white acceptable perspective that horror is so often told from yeah i don't know yeah. maybe i just rambled there but... no not at all no i i i mean i don't have a lot to add because i agree with what you just said and i think that it's uh you know it's funny because on um my other podcast uh we were we actually reviewed Candyman, and my co-host eric on that show um he he had told me one point that he's not really into horror films that he's too like too big of a scary cat <laughs> he might not have used those exact words but that was the implication and um and so but then when i asked him you know like how hard would it be to convince you that we should do Candyman when that comes out and he was just like oh no i'm definitely seeing that we're gonna we're gonna review that like, okay great so then i was trying to so i've been trying to really understand uh, where he stands when it comes to horror films because some some he's all about like he saw the night house too and he loved that and so I'm just like okay wait I don't understand when you are willing to watch a horror movie and when you're not and what you like and what you don't and when we were talking about Candyman specifically I had described it as a movie that is really not scary that it's horrifying more than uh, more than scary and um and he was just like, yeah, that's, that's it. And I was like, I don't know if I really explained anything with that description, but <laughs> my thing with, with Candyman specifically is that it really does do such a, a good, effective job at, um, 
introducing the the horror elements of of this story um and of this legend of Candyman and how that takes over this man's life and ultimately this woman's life too um without never without ever actually ha like becoming like a really scary movie you know there are times when i'm watching certain films and I have to look away. I have to hide behind my eyes because, or behind my hands, because I'm just like, oh, I'm too scared. I can't look at this because I don't like to be startled. But with Candyman, I was able to just sit and watch the whole thing because I was never afraid of like jump scares for the sake of just making your heart jolt or or whatever. It's more just the the fascinating process of watching this story unfold, and I think that that's where this film is. Obviously, it's a horror film, but it really has some elements that make it a really interesting life story too and a history and um, a little bit of fantasy as well so it's blending a lot of um, a lot of things together and that's why it works so well yeah it's it's interesting because one of the things that um, a few people have pointed out I, I think I happened to watch this movie at the same time that there was like a live tweet going on on Twitter so I oh, did that not was a coincidence I thought you did that on purpose no no not at all <laughs> I I just I had happened to notice because I wanted to see it that it was available to, to rent finally and I was like oh I really want to rent it and um and so I like I wasn't on Twitter during the entire film because I, I wasn't going to do that um but then I I went on I was like oh my god everyone's talking about this movie um <laughs> that I just saw but one of the things that uh, I I found kind of interesting was, um, and it was something that you pointed out, and a couple of people pointed out on Twitter, was that you never actually see the murders, right? Mm -hmm. You you don't, and so it's, and it, and so you're never seeing, as, as you pointed out, um, a, a black man killing people, right? Um, primarily, by the way, white people. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and that, that that's, it's so powerful because Candyman is kind of turned into this eruption of racial trauma, right? That's really what he represents. Um, and it, it isn't this physical, this physical monster, right? In the same way that it is in, uh, that he is in, uh, in the original 92 film. Um, but this like literal invisible force at times. Uh, the, the other thing that someone pointed out, and I wish I could find the tweet that did, but it talked about that the, the scene where the group of girls says Candyman into the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. They're tempting fate. They're tempting this like, you know, the, a lot of the film deals with this idea that, you know, you don't want to say it, you know, there's all, there are a number of characters that are just like, no, I'm not going to say it. No, don't do that. You know? And there's a little bit of a joke mm -hmm. um, with people being willing to say it, feeling not willing to say it. Um, but then, so this group of girls is like kind of tempting fate. They're playing the game, right? Which is what this, the story kind of inspires you to do. But the entire murder sequence is actually filmed from inside a bathroom stall. Yeah from the perspective of a, a black girl who is inside the stall and wasn't part of this at all. She just happens to come to, into the bathroom at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's really interesting because one of the things that, that someone on Twitter pointed out was that this is um, in some ways also representing the way that kind of white, um, white hubris yeah. winds up damaging black people. 
right, winds up. So this is a game to these other girls, but it's not a game to her because she's the one who witnesses, who experiences their deaths. Yeah. And she is the one that is going to be traumatized as a result of it. So, That's which true. is, a, it's a really interesting dynamic that I think the film builds is this, this question of trauma and of trauma being constantly visited on, in this case, it's specifically talking about the black community by the hubris and the behavior of white people. Yeah. So that, that kind of goes off of what we were talking about in terms of genre, but that was just something that like, since we're talking about Candyman, I was like, that is a very good point. Mm-hmm. But it's, but when you're going to write about a film like Candyman or, or speak about it in an in intellectual conversation, you have to understand how horror works, what, what yeah. the, the precepts of horror are and how this falls into those but also where it where it differentiates itself and i think that's a perfect example of what we're talking about here yeah and and i think that you know when it comes to horror i i've said before this question of the return of the repressed which is a pretty acceptable viewing of the way that horror works very often the monster is this is representative of some type of repression for a long time that repression has been represented from the perspective of the mainstream right which is usually white usually heterosexual usually cisgender all of those so that the mon- the monstrosity is all of the things that that that, that the mainstream fears right mm-hmm. one of the things that horror has been doing a lot of recently both in literature and in film is actually telling the the horror stories the fear right from the perspective of the repressed and so you're saying like so what do black people fear black people fear white people right black people fear racial violence fear that giving children candy is going to result in them being murdered by police mm-hmm. um you know one of the things that candy did really well is the, the moments when you hear those police sirens uh and there's there's a great scene where i think anthony is walking through the remains of cabrini green and there's a police sergeant and he immediately backs up. Yep. He immediately tries to conceal himself. And it's a very small moment, but it's so effective because you're like, yes, this, this, the fear is not coming into contact with a vengeful ghost. The fear is the police officers who might shoot you for walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, I think the film does that very well, but there's a lot of films recently that have been actually addressing that, that fear at the end of Get Out, when you see the, the, you hear the sirens, you see the police lights, you're like, oh my God, the cops are coming, right? It's no longer, thank God the cops are coming, which is what you usually get in, um, in films told from a white perspective. It's, oh no, everybody's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's what's so great about seeing filmmakers like black filmmakers getting to tell these black stories is the fact that then you understand that so for me watching Candyman and getting to that moment when yeah what you're describing when he's wandering through the the part of the town and then the cop shows up because i understood where it was going and i understood the context of this film i understood i was able to like put myself in his shoes and want him to not be seen by the cops either like i'm instantly on his side there it's not uh you know it's it's not thinking like oh well why is he afraid of the police you know 
Whereas mm-hmm. if a white person were trying to tell that story, it would have come through very differently. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that we say something similar without, I don't want to go into malignant spoilers, but it's so tempting. <laughs> um, but I think we see something similar in malignant where, again, if you've watched giallo films, if you're aware of the, of the subgenre, and if you're aware of the genre of slasher films generally, where you've got this victimized woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the haunted woman, this woman who is, who's dealing with, you know, am I crazy? Am I actually being followed by a killer? Am I being followed by a ghost? What's happening? Um, that a lot of those are told again from a, a much more masculine perspective uh whereas i think malignant is actually told from a feminine perspective in a lot of ways and it's saying like you know this is about a woman being afraid of the things that are happening in her own head the things that are happening to her to her surroundings and um and you're being placed in the position not of a viewer of the victim but of the victim herself um and seeing how she reacts to some of these things yeah yeah are there any other examples you wanted to talk about um in terms of genre or yeah like we could pick any genre and 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 have the same conversation you know definitely i well i mean i think that i think that it is it's worthwhile for um for every critic to kind of have at least a working knowledge of the genre that they're looking at so you know if you're particularly if you're reviewing a horror film and you're like i don't know anything about horror maybe go find out things about horror and particularly what the referentiality is because it's really obvious when critics are talking about a film just like i don't understand why they did this just like maybe that's because you don't actually know that this is a mystery movie (laughs) right yeah or that this is a slasher film you know yeah exactly well like last week i saw the movie the card counter (laughs) and which is the new paul schrader film and this is the movie where i was just like yeah he he definitely kind of the opposite of um, Mason's question earlier, as far as directors who should not necessarily write their own screenplays. Paul Schrader needs to stop directing his own movies. He's not a great director. He's an okay writer and sometimes really good, but he definitely he's not a good director. Um, and the Card Counter is just like kind of the latest example of that. And this is a film where um, it's it, it's on the 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 widest level possible it's sort of a it's a thriller that's what it wants to be (laughs) and um and drilling down a little bit it's a revenge thriller that's the movie that he thinks that he's making it doesn't really work for that and there are a lot of reasons why but that's it's important to understand that so that when certain elements happen, when, when he, Oscar Isaac, the main character, makes certain decisions based on things that you learn about from his past, it's important to understand at the core, Paul Schrader thinks that he's making a revenge thriller. And then from there you can decide if it works as a revenge thriller or not. I don't think it does because I don't think that those moments are earned, but um understanding how a film like that is supposed to work is part of how you know if it's actually working or not yeah uh, absolutely 
Absolutely. So. No, I agree with that. I, I think that, yeah, but when it comes down to it, what we're talking about is knowing what a film is supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. as opposed to just complaining that it's not doing the thing that you wanted it to do. Yeah, like, for, for this film specifically, uh, I mean, it's 20 minutes before you even get introduced to the idea of what, where this might be going at all, um, which is a long time, especially in a movie that's under two hours. But, uh, but basically, this is a story about a guy who used to be in the military. He was an interrogator, quote unquote. Really, he was, um, uh, he tortured people, uh, in the military. And this is a post 9-11, um, story. And he ended up in prison because of his actions. And now he has turned to, uh, he learned to count cards while he was in prison uh, doesn't really use that skill. It's a movie about poker, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and he meets someone along the way who was impacted by the things that happened, not by anything he specifically did, but um, he meets someone who is the son of someone else that he served with. And so then that sets off this chain of events. And so the the problem is that Schrader tries to take this very, you know, slow, you know, approach and, and kind of wander into this revenge element. But um, what, where, where it doesn't, why it doesn't work is because, first of all, yeah, it's called the card counter and he's not really counting cards. Um, <laughs> so I don't really understand that. But also it's, it's like, is this a drama? Is it trying to be a romance? Is it... Um, a story about a guy mentoring a kid who needs some guidance. He can't really figure out what kind of story he's trying to tell. He knows where he wants to go, but he just really struggles with how to get there. Schrader, I mean. And so, uh, so it, it tries to be too many things. And as a result, doesn't ever accomplish the main thing that it is. And so that, and that's a good example of just, just a failure of the genre of failure yeah. of a film a failure being like this i know what you're trying to do but you're not doing it you know exactly. that's that's basically what it comes down to so it's not saying like you made a crime movie when i expected you to make a western um it's more like you made a, i know what you were making but you didn't do it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so uh, and this is why when film I'm really glad the Academy hasn't gone this route, but this is why when, when film um, awards, movie and TV awards, try to break things down by comedy and drama, that doesn't work. That's too limiting. You know, if you're going to break it down by, by different types of films, then you really need to expand that and, and include genres because drama and comedy are, are not sufficient. Yeah. I personally think get rid of that and just celebrate great movies because you know, there's lots of <laughs> there's lots of great films but you know like my two of my favorite movies this year are Pig and Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar you can't get two <laughs> films that are any more different but they're both so great for such different reasons I like that I like that Pig yeah. and Barb and Star yeah <laughs> I contain multitudes. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about another film that kind of um, blends some genres together. Yeah. It's one that I finally watched yesterday. Um, 
Nightmare Alley in there. We got a trailer for the new Guillermo del Toro update that's coming um, in December, I believe. So, yeah. Nightmare Alley. Um, from a title like that, that has Nightmare in, in it, I did not know what to expect. I was, um, I really had never, because I hadn't seen it before, so I really didn't know much. People were saying it was this great noir the um the the synopsis on imdb just says the rise and fall of stanton carlisle a mentalist whose lies and deceit proved to be his downfall and it's got nightmare in the title so i was thinking like ooh, cool 1940s like kind of horror story it's not that it's really not it's very good um and it definitely is a cool noir but it's uh uh, the genre elements of it are an interesting mix that I was not prepared for. So, um, like, it's really more of a focus on that rise and fall. And then it's got a little bit of, like, crime thrown in. And because um, you've got some, uh, um, what's the word? illegal shit going down. <laughs> well, that too, but no, I'm talking like um oh my gosh, I'm like it's the dumbest word that I'm blinking on, but like he gets some um, um... <laughs> I, I I I honestly I'm not doing it thinking of. <laughs> oh my gosh, like I'm going to feel so stupid when I remember what word it is, but like um not crisscrossed. He gets uh Double crossed. Double crossed. That's there it. we go. Yeah. All like right. There's double crossing happening. There's accidental, involuntary murders happening. Like it's not really murder, but um, guilt. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into this. So it's one that definitely um, blends genre elements together. Yeah, I mean, I think that if if you know I were to categorize this, would be like, well, it's a, it's a psychological thriller. Like that's yeah. kind of where it goes because a lot of it is about his psychology, particularly, mm -hmm, and the reason why he does what he does and why he makes the choices that he does. And I there is some horror kind of mixed into that. Um, this is one of those films. I was watching it again yesterday because uh, I love it and. Uh, and I was like, man, I really wish that this book and this film could have come out in like 1931 so that Todd Browning could have directed this because oh, yeah. um, it has, you know, and Browning was himself, he was, a, a, he worked with a carnival. Um, he was, a, I think he was a carnival barker for a while. So there is definitely those elements um, of kind of what is being shown, what isn't that sort of topsy-turvy sort of world that is kind of off kilter and um uh never never come no one is is you know normal i guess in in this film everybody kind of has an angle uh but i i don't know i mean i kind of just wanted to force you to watch it <laughs> because <laughs> i love it um but it is an interesting film even with some of the issues that that they had with the code obviously they had to change certain things um, and it's kind of obvious where they had to change them. Mm -hmm. But the sort of perversity of it, because it really is this this looking into this man's psychology and not being able to come to a conclusion completely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that I found the most intriguing was like, am I supposed to sympathize with him or am I supposed to just say, well, he brought all this on himself? 
And I love that. I love that yeah. it's not clear cut. And and there are some very interesting ways. I don't want to spoil it because I'm sure that the new film is going to... For anybody who hasn't seen this, um, I'm sure the new film is going to do uh, pretty well with it too because, I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro and he's such a fascinating storyteller. But I'm really interested to see where the two films will differ and mm -hmm. wondering if he's going to make it more of a horror story or if he's going to stay pretty faithful to the source material. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's um, I mean, I think the, the there there are a couple of big changes to the, the novel. This was originally a novel mm -hmm. um, which was supposedly very heavily based upon the author's own experiences in the carnival. Um, but there's there are a couple of very big changes that the film makes and i think that that a lot of it has to do it's simply with the code there are certain things that they can't do can't show um certain conclusions that they can't come to because uh the code really wouldn't let them but even with that you know you've got tyrone power who's such a charming leading man he and really is particularly at that point and he's so at best he's amoral in this mm -hmm. film and really most of the time he's immoral and he's he's almost there's there comes a point in the movie where you feel like he's basically arguing against himself he's he's snow he's um he's conning himself yeah. into believing that what he's doing is okay and that i find really interesting as well especially because he also has the capacity for uh for morality and for guilt and because he is he is burdened by things that happened in the past too and so it's like those things exist in him he's not just a um he's not just like this kind of monstrous you know likable con man but who really doesn't give a crap about anybody else he's not like that no and, and in fact i think that um Lilith, the, the psychiatrist character, mm -hmm. at one point says to him that you, she, she's like, well, you're, you seem to be a pretty normal human being. You are um, ruthless and greedy when you're trying to get what you want and kind and generous when you have it. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a good, and it's, it's sort of a dark view of humanity, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but I think that that's kind of a good sort of encapsulation of his character in a lot of ways, that he is capable of kindness. He is capable of trying to do the right thing, as it were, but also is constantly pushing to have more. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, and that's ultimately what his, his downfall is. But he gets it by, by conning people, by chicanery, by, you know, lying, essentially. And even lying to himself and lying to the people that he works with. Yeah, so I, I am very intrigued by where uh, Del Toro is actually going to, to go with this. Because one of the things that I like about the original film is that there is this undercurrent of, like, kind of perverted obsession right and it's yeah. some it's semi it's somewhat sexual but also somewhat just supernatural almost that you know even at one point i think the the stanton character says i don't know why i do the things that i do mm -hmm. and but he he keeps on doing them and he even knows that in some places that what he's doing is wrong but he keeps on doing it it's like he's got this obsessive drive to fool people to you know to destroy people essentially yeah yeah exactly and and what's interesting is that it 
it really all builds into a character that works really well and that is really fascinating to watch. It's not it's not someone that you're like, oh, I don't want to root for that guy. It's actually, in some ways, the opposite. So. Yeah, you, you, you get conned by him. You like him despite himself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I th and I think a lot of that, I will be interested to see whether Bradley Cooper can pull this off, who's, I, I don't think, as charming and likable a leading man to begin with. But you know, um, I feel like he used to be. I don't know what happened to him. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you like Tyrone Power. like and, and he, at that time, you know, that was a, kind of at the height of his... Um, of his career where he was like he was this great leading it's kind of like having Cary Grant play that role yeah uh, or Chris Hemsworth you know <laughs> he's just like oh but he's so likable uh-huh yeah so it's uh it's I loved it it is um if you were to happen to be on certain um open streaming platforms that don't require subscriptions you would probably be able to find it um <laughs> it's on youtube guys you can watch it on youtube um i but i loved it so i'm gonna it's also on criterion it's not streaming on criterion channel right now but i'm definitely gonna buy the criterion edition because i really want to dive in more to the film and um yeah but it's it's definitely definitely worth a watch the version i watched on youtube was actually pretty good um, I could see the whole thing. I could hear it just fine, which you never know what you're going to get on, on stuff like that. But anyway, definitely worth the watch. And yeah, I don't know. I'm excited for the new one simply because it's Guillermo del Toro. I love him. I love his, <laughs> his filmmaking. So I, I think that most people are excited because it's just Guillermo del Toro. And, and I really am interested in what he does with this story. I think, I suspect most people are excited for, for similar reasons that I was now that I know the story, it's a little different, but, um, Guillermo del Toro and a movie with nightmare in the title. <laughs> <laughs> also, also I like, and I've said this a couple of times on Twitter, like, I cannot wait to see Kate Blanchett in, in the role that she plays. Oh, like, yeah, I am really looking forward to that. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, let's see. Nightmare Alley. I was just looking to see when it actually, what the release date is. Um, it is soon. Uh, December, uh, wait, that's Argentina. <laughs> that doesn't help us. December 17th is when it will be out in the United States. Goody. Just in time for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> Take your whole family on Christmas Day, only if you're vaccinated. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, this cast is amazing. Kate Blanchett, Willem Dafoe, Bradley Cooper, Mary Steenburgen, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Tony Collette. I just, yeah. David Strathairn, Tim Blake Nelson. Seeing some of these folks as carnies is going to be really fun. <laughs> So anyway, um, anything else, any final thoughts, any movies that you plan on watching this upcoming week? I'm trying to think. Well, I I'm, I'm, should be covering some films out of uh, New York Film Festival, which has press screenings starting. I am not going to be going in person 
because I'm just not comfortable with it. And I don't like the fact that there are a lot of people coming from out of state, including from places like Texas uh, to New York City, where we're actually like got a lot of this under control. Um, please, everybody, if you're coming, remember that if you're if you're indoors, you have to be vaccinated. Uh, that's like a, a rule now in New York City. You, if in order to go into restaurants and movie theaters and stuff like that, you must present a vaccination card. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't an option. Uh, so, so yeah. So I, I am going to be trying to get up some some films and uh, get up some reviews of films out of New York Film Festival. Cool. Very cool. I'm not really sure what I'm watching this week, but I'm sure it'll be fun. I'm really excited because Real Housewives of Salt Lake City came back, and um, that shows all sorts of <laughs> genre chaos, even though it's a reality show. It's got crime this season, and lots of drama. Uh, I love it. It's it's <laughs> such a... <laughs> yeah, it starts off the very first episode of this season, and I already had known this has happened because I'm kind of following along what's been going on but uh, it starts off with one of the main people getting arrested so it's like (laughs) this is gonna be a good season i can't wait so yeah i've never watched a real housewife show until salt lake city and i yeah i just can't get enough it's not enough to make me want to watch any of the others but i'm all in on this one (laughs) so yeah anyway so, well, thank you for joining us for our genre discussion. Um, we would love to hear some of your thoughts as well, and there's lots of ways that, that you can do that. So um, we would like to thank our patrons who help make the show possible. Um, that is Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Manina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. If you would like to join them and become a patron yourself, that's patreon.com slash citizen Um, and you can support the show that way. We have our Zazzle store. It, updates are coming. They're not there. We keep saying that, but we promise they're coming. Um, that's Zazzle.com slash citizen pod and our Ko-Fi is co-fi.com slash citizen You can also contact us. We love it. We do have our website, citizendamepod.com, which is where Lauren's reviews from NYFF will be coming. Um, I've got some stuff that's going to be there soon, too. Um, And you can reach us by email if you're not into the social medias. That is citizendamepod at gmail.com. But if you are on social media, we are on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod. And Letterboxd at Citizen Dame, where we've got some fun lists and we'll be adding more uh, more genre-specific stuff in the upcoming week. But you can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye! And the legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. So, I thought that we could... What did you think? Summon him. (laughs) Hell no. No. Candyman. Anthony. Candyman. Anthony, no. 
Candyman. Stop. Stop it. Candyman. Stop it. Okay. You better not do okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Candyman. See, you play too much. Stop, stop, stop.